Maybe you think you are beyond the reach of God's grace. Tom, you don't know the person I've become. I don't, but God does. And the gospel is his good news of hope to everyone who will believe. There's nothing you have done that is beyond the reach of the grace of God in Christ. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello, I'm Bill Wright, and Tom is continuing his current series with part four of the Keynote of Romans. Deuteronomy 32.4 says of God, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are just, a God of faithfulness and without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. Well, friend, throughout the Bible, we learn that it's impossible for our own righteousness to ever satisfy God's standard of perfect law-keeping, perfect conformity to God, because He is the standard. As you'll be reminded today, the reason you can never measure up to God's standard and earn your acceptance with God is that the very character of God Himself is the standard of what is righteous. Let's join Tom right now with today's message on The Word Unleashed. There is a temptation, and I understand this temptation. I experienced it myself early in my Christian life. And that is, when you doubt your salvation, there is a temptation to go back to that event where you think you were saved and to ask yourself this question, did I have enough faith? Did I have enough faith? Well, that question in and of itself assumes that God has some kinds of divine scales in heaven on which he measures the quantity of faith. And and he puts your faith on there, and if the scales tilt, you're in. If they don't, well, that's not it at all. That misunderstands the place of faith. Listen very carefully. God does not decide in the absence of our real righteousness to accept our faith as if it were righteousness. God doesn't say, okay, he, he doesn't have any righteousness, but he has faith, okay, I'll accept that. No, faith is not a valid substitute for righteousness. And that makes faith a work, which Paul has already said is not true. He always makes believing and working opposite each other. So our faith in Christ is not our righteousness. Christ's righteousness is our righteousness, as we'll see next week. Instead, Scripture always speaks of faith as the channel or the instrument through which we receive salvation. It says we are saved by faith or through faith. Faith is merely like our empty hand outstretched to receive the free gift of God's righteousness in Christ. Faith is the channel, the instrument, not the cause or the grounds. John Calvin in the Institutes compares faith to a kind of vessel or or cup with which we come empty and with the mouth of our soul open to seek the grace of God. That's faith. Paul says that the gospel is something I'm not ashamed of because It is for everyone who believes. In other words, it requires no human effort or merit. Perhaps you're here this morning, and you understand Martin Luther. 
Because you have on your own soul a weight of guilt, a sense of foreboding that one day you will die and stand before a holy God and that there's no hope for you. And you would do absolutely anything you could to gain a right standing before God. Listen, the good news is you don't have to do anything. It's already been done by Jesus Christ. You simply have to believe in him who by grace alone declares ungodly sinners to be righteous solely on the basis of the perfect life and the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. No wonder Paul wasn't ashamed. We should never be ashamed of the gospel because it is, number one, God's power. Number two, it produces salvation. Number three, it requires no human work or merit. The fourth reason that Paul gives that we should not be ashamed is that the gospel is God's universal message for every person. Verse 16, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek You know, it's interesting the categories of people that we have already met in this first chapter that Paul says can benefit from the gospel. I mean, look at verse 14. In Romans 1.14, he divides all Gentiles, all non-Jewish people into categories. First of all, there are the Greeks and the barbarians. We noted that those are the sophisticated and cultured and the unsophisticated and the uncultured. He also divides the Gentiles in verse 14 into the wise and the foolish. These are the intelligentsia, the elite, the educated, and the uneducated, and the untrained, and the unlearned. And Paul says, it's for all of them. For all the Gentiles is his point. Now in verse 16, Paul tells us that the entire world is the target of the gospel. He, notice, divides the entire world into two categories, Jew and Greek. Greek, as it's used in this context, is obviously different than it's used in verse 14 because here he contrasts it with the Jews. So here Greek means everyone who isn't Jewish. It's another way of saying Gentile. This includes all the categories listed in verse 14. But Paul adds here in verse, four, in verse uh, 16, rather, It is to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, that's remarkable when Paul says it's to the Jew first. Remember, he's the apostle to the Gentiles. He's writing this letter primarily to Roman churches that are composed of Gentiles. And still, he says, the gospel was for the Jews first. What does he mean by that? Well, I think he means the Jews first in two senses. First of all, he means that the promise was made especially to the Jews because they were God's chosen people. You remember back in Genesis chapter 12, God chooses Abraham and says, I'm going to make a nation out of you. He repeats it in chapter 15, chapter 17, again in chapter 22. And then in Exodus 19, when he's got the whole nation there before him at Sinai, he says, you are going to be my witness nation. God didn't choose the Jews just to choose them and to ignore the rest of humanity. He chose the Jews as the channel through which to make himself known to the rest of the world. It was through Abraham's descendants that the gospel was to come to all men. 
What did Jesus say to the Samaritan woman in John 4, 22? He said, salvation is from the Jews. And we who are Gentiles are now, according to Romans 11, we are like the wild branch grafted into the olive tree, which are the Jewish people. But I think Paul also means the gospel came to the Jews first in terms of time or chronology. Who was it that first received in the Old Testament scriptures the message of the gospel? It was the Jewish people. What's the first mention of the gospel in the Old Testament? Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And that gospel only grows in our understanding as we work our way through the Old Testament. The gospel was preached to the Jews first during Christ's ministry. What did Jesus say to the Gentile woman in Matthew 15, 24? I was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Jesus' ministry was focused on the Jewish people, although, of course, he ministered to Gentiles as well as a a sort of promise of what was coming when he commanded his apostles to take the gospel to the whole world. Even Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, took the gospel to the Jews first in his ministry. In Acts 13, verse 46, Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, it was necessary, he's talking to the Jewish people here, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. But don't miss the point Paul is making in verse 16. When he says to the Jew first, as well as to the Greeks, he's including everybody. Paul intends to show that the gospel doesn't discriminate. Look at chapter 10, Romans chapter 10, verse 11. After Paul's explained what it means to believe in in God by faith, he says in verse 11, For the Scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. Here, again, Jew and Gentile. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. The gospel doesn't discriminate. It's for everybody. Now, we understand that in our minds But I'm afraid too often we have a tendency to assume that there are certain groups beyond the reach of God's grace. Think about in your own mind. Are there people you think of, people in your life, people that you know of, that you just write off and say, there's no hope for that person? What about certain people groups, certain races, certain ethnicities, certain nationalities? I think in our time and era we might be tempted to think that of the Arab nations of the Middle East. Listen, our church has missionaries in that part of the world because we believe the gospel is for them as well. What about gross sinners? Are there people in your life who just, they do the worst of things and you just sort of write them off and think, oh well, there's really no hope for them. The gospel's for them too. What did Paul say in 1 Corinthians 6, he lists all these gross sins, and then he says to the people in Corinth, such were some of you, but you were washed. Gospels for gross sinners too. Maybe you're 
concerned on the other side. Maybe there are people in your life who are part of the elite, the powerful, the, the mighty of this world, and, and you look at them and you say, I just don't know. They're just too proud, too elevated, too sure of themselves, too independent. Maybe you look at the power brokers of our world. Maybe you think this about our president or about the leaders in Congress or about other people in power, maybe business leaders, and you just think, no way. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, not many mighty, not many noble, but some. What about the self-righteous religious people? You look at people who are involved in cults, who are caught in cults of various kinds, who are, who are incredibly self-righteous, who don't see themselves as sinners. Do you look at those people and think, oh, well, I'll move past them and go tell someone who knows they're a sinner? Listen, the gospel's for them too. Think about the apostle Paul. He was trapped in the first century false religion of Judaism that was a works-based system, and God saved him out of it. I want you to think about the people in your life. Folks, there is no one in your life beyond the reach of the gospel and for whom it was not intended. No one you'll encounter. If we're honest, we have a tendency to ignore those who are different from us in race or national origin, who live grossly sinful lifestyles, or the elite and the powerful. But the gospel, Paul says, is appropriate for every person. It is God's universal message. There's another application here. Maybe, maybe you think you are beyond the reach of God's grace. Tom, you just don't know. You don't know what I know about me. You don't know what God knows about me. You don't know what I've done. You don't know the person I've become. I don't, but God does. And the gospel is his good news of hope to everyone who will believe. There's nothing that you have become, there's nothing you have done that is beyond the reach of the grace of God in Christ. Romans 10, 13 says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The Bible ends in Revelation twenty two seventeen with this invitation, whoever is spiritually thirsty, let him come. Whoever wishes, let him take of the free gift of the water of life. Paul was not ashamed of the gospel because the gospel is God's power. It provides salvation. It requires no human merit or effort. And it is God's universal message for every person. The fifth reason that Paul gives as to why we should never be ashamed of the gospel is that it promises righteousness. It promises righteousness. Now, I just want to look and sort of introduce this point today. We'll look at it much more carefully next Sunday. But look at verse 17. In it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. Here Paul explains another reason that he was not ashamed of the gospel, and this reason is specifically about the content of the gospel message. It's about the righteousness that comes from God and is credited to the sinner. Now, that should shock you, because most contemporary presentations of the gospel are very man-centered. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. The gospel 
on the other hand, is first and foremost about righteousness. You see, the gospel is God's answer to the age-old question in Job 25.4, how can a man be just with God? Or how can he be clean who is born of woman? That's the question. And the gospel is the answer to that question. The central purpose of the gospel is to enable us to stand with righteousness in the presence of God. Now, this word righteousness is a crucial word to understand. Both the Hebrew and the Greek nouns translated righteousness come from the sphere of law and courtroom. And both of them can be translated either righteousness or justice. Now, in English, righteousness and justice are two very different words. But in Hebrew and in Greek, both righteousness and justice come from the same word group. Both have the fundamental idea of conforming to the law, conforming to a standard. Righteousness describes someone's conformity to God's law. If I keep the law, if I conform to the law, I'm righteous. Justice is God's responding rightly to that person based on their conformity or lack of conformity to God's law. God's treating that person rightly based on whether they conform or don't conform to God's law. That's justice. Now, when righteousness is used with reference to God, it speaks of two things. When God is described as righteous, it means one of two things. First of all, it either is speaking of God's inherent moral excellence, or secondly, of the rightness of his conduct. Let's look at the first one. His inherent moral excellence. This is his character. Think of it this way. God is right. He is what is right in his person. A.W. Tozer writes, When God acts justly, he is not doing so to conform to an independent criterion, something outside of himself. But he is simply acting like himself. Here's, Here's a very important statement. Listen closely. Tozer writes, Everything in the universe is good to the degree it conforms to the nature of God and evil as it fails to do so. And God perfectly conforms to the standard which is his own character. And therefore, he is in and of himself righteous. Deuteronomy 32.4 says of God, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are just a God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. Jeremiah 12, 1, righteous are you, O Lord. In John 17, 25, Jesus refers to the Father as the righteous Father. This is his character. God is what is right. But the second way God is described as righteous is pertaining to the rightness of his conduct. This is external to God. This is not his character. This is his actions. God not only is what is right, God does what is right. And he responds to other individuals based on their rightness or wrongness, based on their conformity to his law. Psalm 89, 14 puts it this way, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. 
What that means is that God's reign in the world is characterized by doing what is right. Psalm 145, verse 17, the Lord is righteous in all his ways. You see, God is the standard. God is righteous because he perfectly conforms to the standard, which is his own character. That's why Scripture tells us that it's absolutely impossible for our righteousness to ever satisfy God's standard of perfect law-keeping, perfect conformity to God, because he's the standard. I mean, Psalm 143, verse 2 says, In your sight, God, in your sight, no man living is righteous. Ecclesiastes 7.20, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. Isaiah 64.6, all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Apart from Christ, I want you to think about your finest moment. Your greatest moment of righteousness, when you did something right and it was when you did it with the purest of motives, the the best moment of your life, God says, that is so far from meeting his standard that in his sight, it's like menstruous rags. It's unacceptable. Your finest moment. Romans 3.12, there is none who does good, there is not even one. I'm not the exception, you're not the exception, not even one. You see, the reason none of us can ever measure up to God's standard and earn our acceptance with God is that the very character of God himself is the standard of what is righteous. However men may appear to us, they all appear equally guilty before God. While the kind of our sin, the degree of our sin may be different, our standing before God is no different than the Middle Eastern terrorist you see on the news. Our standing before God is no different than a mass murderer. Our standing before God is no different than Hitler himself. We have failed to meet the standard of God's righteousness, his own character. Can I just say... If you're here this morning and you are clinging to some hope that who you are or what you have done is somehow going to please God and satisfy God on the day of judgment, you are very sadly mistaken. And you are flying in the face of everything God has said in his word. So how can we who are unrighteous by nature, this is what Luther struggled with, How can we who are unrighteous by nature and action ever be right before a God of perfect righteousness? Look at verse 17, Romans 1, 17. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. What does Paul mean here by the righteousness of God? Well, we'll look at it next week. Well, let me give you a hint. Look at chapter 3, verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. And Paul says in verse 22, I'm talking about the righteousness of God 
which comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And look at chapter 5, verse 17. He refers to it here as the gift of righteousness. The gift of righteousness. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes this, What is revealed in the gospel is God's solution. And God's solution is that God himself provides us with the very righteousness that he demands. That is the gospel. You see, the reality of God's providing us with the righteousness that he demands, that is the gospel. It's what theologians call justification. Listen, don't be ashamed of the gospel because it promises you the gift of God's righteousness. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part four of The Keynote of Romans. Tom will continue with part five on our next program. Join us then, won't you? Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And be sure to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory explaining God's truth.